If you turn with me to, to the passage on which today's uh, teaching is based, it's on page 8 in your bulletins. <clears throat> I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 28, and we'll read from verses 10 through 22. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba, and he set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. And this is God's word. The book of Genesis teaches us that the problems of the world are more than just uh, educational, they're more than just social or sociological. They're more than just economic or political or cultural or racial. It's our sin. That's the problem. But God promised Abraham that one of his descendants, one of his sons, will redeem the world. And so each generation, uh, God, God's chosen son would carry the seed until one day the ultimate savior, the ultimate redeemer would come and restore everything that's broken and wrong with the world. And for the past month, we've been uh, transitioning from Abraham, the life of Abraham, to his son Isaac, and then Isaac to his son Jacob. And here we are, Jacob. Jacob is obsessed. He's obsessed with the blessing. What is the blessing? We said that the blessing is the prosperity of God. The blessing is the favor of God. Jacob was born one of two sons. They were twins. So there's a predicament. Which son would get the blessing? And, and his mother, Rebecca. Noting, knowing that the sons were jostling about in her womb and they came out as twins, he, she inquired of this and she hears the prophecy that the elder son would serve the younger son. In other words, Jacob, the younger, would be the one that God blesses. But as he grew, Jacob's ignored. And Isaac, his father, favors Esau dotes on Esau, loves Esau, embraces Esau, gets the kiss from Esau. So Jacob, he, he grows up. He's desperate for his father's love, desperate for his attention. He feels absolutely worthless. 
because he didn't have his father's love. So what does he do? One day, he's dressed up like Esau. Esau is athletic. He's dynamic. He's a leader. He's strong, and he's masculine. He reminds Isaac of himself. And Jacob, he tricks his father, who is now old, who's now blind or being blinded, and stole this blessing from his brother. And because now his brother Esau, his brother is angry. He wants to kill Jacob. Jacob's got no choice but to leave to run away. And so we're going to look at four things today. We're going to look at Jacob's confusion. We're going to look at uh, uh, Jacob's dream. And then we're going to look into Jacob's ladder. And lastly, we're going to look at what that means for all of us. His confusion, Jacob's confusion, his dream, his ladder, and then the meaning of it all for all of us. First, we're going to look at Jacob's confusion. Verses 10 and 11. Jacob, it says that Jacob reached a certain place. In other words, the place has no name. We don't, it's, it's insignificant. We don't know where that place is. And that means that Jacob, running away from his family, is now in the middle of nowhere, which is really almost a metaphor for his entire life now. The text says he takes a stone and uses it as a pillow. Now, if you think about it, you would put a jacket under your head. You would put a bag under your head. You would put anything under your head if you had it. That means Jacob, when he left, he left with nothing, and so he's absolutely poor and broken. He left his family at a time when you're never supposed to leave your family. In ancient times, you'd never leave your family. And so not only is he bankrupt, he's homeless, and he's alone. And because he's alone, there's no security. Because he's alone, he's vulnerable, he's defenseless. Life has completely taken a turn for Jacob. It's fallen apart. And in verses 10 to 11, Jacob stops for night. The text says, because the sun had set. It's almost as though the sun has set on Jacob's entire life. There is now a darkness in his life. Life is empty. Life is dark. Life is completely opaque and uncertain. Now, think. Jacob, he left home because of this blessing. That's why we all leave home, right? We all leave home for the blessing. Uh, we all leave home, we enter into the big city, and we want to live that life because we believe that life is going to increase our options and freedom and potential and joy, our happiness. But at this point, because Jacob lied, because he manipulated, because he stole, he's lost everything. He, he did that for the blessing, and he's lost everything. Where is the blessing? And so Jacob, he couldn't see it because, my goodness, I mean, if you think about it, uh, it's not just that God's plan seemed so far away. God himself seemed far. God himself seemed distant. And so Jacob is not just confused about his life. He's confused about God. And he's alone. And life and the blessing and God himself seems closed off to Jacob. Now remember, Jacob wasn't seeking God. He wasn't praying to God. He's not even acknowledging God, not praising God, not thanking God. You don't see Jacob here praying for, to God for help. You don't see him asking God for mercy. He's just poor in the middle of nowhere, and he's alone, and he's lost, and he's confused. But then he has a dream. It's a second point. In this dream, he encounters God. And in this dream, Jacob sees three things, hears three things, and is comforted by three things. What did he see? One, verse 12, he sees a stairway. 
Now, some of us call this a ladder. Uh, we, that's where we get the phrase, Jacob's ladder, right? But it's not quite like a ladder. It's basically a huge ramp, a ramp that starts at the bottom on the ground, and it reaches all the way to the top, to the skies, and so to heaven. And uh, two, Jacob sees angels. The angels of God are on the stairway, and they're ascending and descending. Now, you've got to remember, the angels here in the Bible, no in the Bible does the angels, does it depict angels like little cupids. They're not like that. In the Bible, when you encountered an angel, the angel would often say, do not be afraid. Why? Because they were the royal heralds of the king. They were the royal messengers of the king. And so they were powerful and they were ominous. And, and uh, they, uh, they commanded a presence. And here in this text, they're ascending and descending on the on this stairway. Meaning what? God's royal power. God's royal kingdom is on the move. And these angels were the visual display <clears throat> of the royal majestic commanding power and the holiness of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, you read this briefly in your call to worship. When Isaiah caught a glimpse of the royal train of God, and above God there were these angels, and they were crying out, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah had a loss for words. Isaiah was the greatest orator in his generation, and he could say nothing but fall to the ground and say, I am cursed. Woe is me. In other words, I'm dead. That's what Jacob saw. Now, third thing he saw was he saw the Lord himself. Verse 13, he saw the Lord. Robert Alter, he's a liberal scholar, but he's really one of the foremost experts on the ancient Hebrew language. And, and Robert Alter, in looking at this text, says that the Lord was above the ram. That's what the text says. But actually, in actuality, the text reads that the Lord was poised over Jacob on this ram. In other words, he came down. He came down and stood over Jacob, right? That's what he did. God literally came down onto the ram, stood over Jacob, and he speaks to Jacob. And to Jacob, he says three, three things. One, verse 13 and 14, he says, I'm going to give you this land. That's what he says. Remember, Jacob was poor, Jacob is bankrupt. To have land was to be wealthy. He says, I'm going to give you this land. The second thing he says, verse, thir- verse 15, he says, <clears throat> I, uh, I am with you. Now remember, Jacob was alone. He had no family. He had no friends. He was homeless. And thirdly, he says, I will watch over you. I'm going to protect you. Remember, Jacob was vulnerable. He, was, he had no security. He, had, he was defenseless. Jacob is a liar. Jacob is a manipulator. Jacob, he broke his home. Look at the tenderness of God. Look at the compassion of God. And this comforted Jacob. It comforted Jacob in three ways. One, verse 13, God says, I, the Lord, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. In other words, what he's saying is he's recounting the generations of what? His promise and his faithfulness. He says, I am faithful. I am good for it. I am consistently faithful. I am in it and consistently faithful to you. Verses 13 to 14, he says, I'm going to give you and your descendants this land. And your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. In other words, there's a plan. I know you're suffering. There's a plan. I know you're suffering, but there's a promise. I got this, he says. And in verse 15, he says, I'm with you, and I'm watching over you. In other words, your future 
is secure with me. What love. What grace. Is it because Jacob deserved it? No. Is it because Jacob lived right? No. Jacob lived a horrible life. Is it because he had great faith? No. In other words, this dream that Jacob has tells Jacob that he was totally wrong about his view of God. We are totally wrong about our view of God in the very similar ways. And that's why Jacob was confused. It's why he was confused because when, when he was distant from God, when he felt like he was suffering and distant from God, God seemed remote. God seemed detached and life was tragic and life was lonely. So it's easy to put those things together and say, if I'm suffering, God must be absent. If I'm suffering, God must be distant. If I'm suffering, God must have abandoned me. But here, Jacob sees the royal power of God at his lowest point, on the ground, literally on the ground with a stone under his head, God, he sees God's royal power, and he sees the angels, and he hears his words, and he receives the comfort, and he realizes, in my lowest point, when I am totally alone and bankrupt, God is, un- is not unconcerned. God is not uninvolved. God is not remote. God has not abandoned me. He is not distant. For a moment, Jacob saw God on the move and accomplishing 10,000 things for his glory and for Jacob's good. And it's an amazing thing. In the Old Testament, you see a couple stories. You have Ruth, Ruth who has lost her husband. And when you lose your husband in the ancient times, your life is over. She is destitute. She has no immediate family. She's penniless. And the entire book of Ruth, in the entire book of Ruth, it's filled with daily suffering. A lot of mundane, daily struggle to survive. And God has hardly mentioned, let alone there's no dreams, there's no visions, there's no miracles. It's just daily suffering. And God is, God's work is implied throughout the text. In the story of uh, Queen Esther, Esther risks her life. She risks death and challenges the social, political structure of the most powerful kingdom in the world to date. And God is not mentioned once in the entire narrative. Ah, but he is concerned. And he is involved. And he is not just concerned and involved. In fact, he is ordaining and orchestrating redemption through Esther's suffering, through Ruth's suffering. He's, he's ordaining and orchestrating redemption through suffering and the risk of death. And if he could do it through people like Ruth, and if he can do it through people like Esther, and if he could do it in the life of Jacob, a liar, a manipulator, a deceiver, and homewrecker, he can certainly do that through you. Can he? Can he not do that? Some of you, you've betrayed people. Some of you have been betrayed. Some of you have been hurt deeply. Some of you have caused deep hurt. Some of you have experienced loss, experienced loss. Some of you are rejoicing over the loss of others. Every day in this church, relationships are on the brink of breaking. And life feels like sometimes you're living in a house of cards and you're blind to everything that God is doing, but God is on the move. And he's doing 10,000 things for his glory and for your good. 
And it is a godless person who says, I can't see it. It is a godless person who says there must be no good. Think about it. Is it wise? Is it wise to say that because you can't see a good reason for your suffering, there must be no good reason? It's easy to be angry at God, a God who is all-powerful because of our suffering, because of our losses, because of our hurts. But think about it. If you can consider a God who is powerful enough to stop that suffering, then you have to consider a God that's wise enough to have a perspective that you don't have. Wise enough to have a perspective that you don't have. Why did I go through all these things? There are many ways you can answer that question. You can blame yourself. You can blame people on the outside. You can blame the world and just its state. You can blame God and raise your fist like Stalin. They say that Joseph Stalin, who was at one point a seminary student, had on his deathbed lifted up his fist to God and then breathe this last. We can do that, or you can say, maybe, maybe I have a perspective that is shallower. Maybe there is one who transcends my perspective, who not only is all-powerful to stop it, but he has chosen for me to walk through that valley, then maybe he has a perspective I do not have. Maybe God is at work in ways that we cannot see. For Jacob, God didn't stand in a stairway and ask Jacob, I want you to come on up to me. You know, in ancient cultures, that was normal. In fact, if you see a lot of the Eastern cultures today, that is very normal. You approach the elder. You approach with humility. You have to do the work. You have to reconcile. They might have wronged you, but you have to go to them, right, and, and, and reconcile. God didn't stand on top of the stairway and ask Jacob to climb up. God actually came down and came above Jacob and spoke into Jacob, not words of command. That's not what Jacob, what he gave Jacob was exactly what he needed. He assured him and he gave him the comfort and the promise of God. Not because Jacob was so good, but because Jacob was so lost. You see that? Look at the tender faithfulness of God. Jacob, a liar. Jacob, a cheater. He can't ascend. He can't get to God on his own. He's not even seeking God. He's not even repenting to God. But God came down. He gave Jacob access. What is that stairway? What is that ladder? What do you learn from this ladder? Verse 16 and 17. Jacob doesn't wake up and say, wow, that was an amazing dream. This is great. He doesn't do that. It says that he woke up and he was afraid. He was in awe. What he's really saying is, I just met God face to face. He came to me face to face. How in the world am I still alive? And his conclusion at the end of that, that thought process, he says, this is the gate of heaven. It's very important. Why is it important? In Genesis chapter 11, people come together to build a tower, a tower that reaches to the heavens. In fact, the word Babel, where the Tower of Babel comes from, right, uh, it's a double entendre of sorts. It comes from two words, the word for gate and the word for God. Babel literally means the gate to God or the gate to heaven. The Tower of Babel was, was, merely, uh, was most likely a temple, now, these ancient temples were ziggurats. They were kind of built uh, like um, uh, in the form of a pyramid. And the side of this pyramid, on the side, there was a great stairway that reached to the top. 
right? It's a very, very uh, narrow stairs. If you've seen pictures of it, um, you have this ziggurat. And that's what these temples looked like. And, and uh, there was a very steep stone stairway, essentially, in the middle that oftentimes rose to the top, a, literally a stairway to heaven. It was the highest point, generally, in any particular city or major city. It was usually built in a very familiar place around the entire region, near the most important people, most likely the capital. And so it was the center of the world for these people. And these, the tower was often built, these ziggurats were built as a temple for the people to make their way to God, right? You sent a priest up to the temple. You sent sacrifices up to the temple because somehow you needed an access point, the highest point for the people to meet God. You had to climb these steps and make a sacrifice. That's how you earn the blessing. You have to pay the price to earn the blessing. Now, this narrator is juxtaposing this stairway that we're reading about, this gate that we're reading about in this passage with this story, right? And he's juxtaposing that with the Tower of Babel that we had heard about weeks ago. Why is Jacob in awe? Jacob is in awe because he's beginning to learn that the way that you access God, the way that that access works is very different from what he originally thought. That stairway to God is very, very different than uh, what he thought, and it changes his view of God. And if we understand it, it will change our view of God. You see, every other religion in the world requires you to do the work. You have to earn the blessing. You have to ascend the stairwell. And what happens is, if you know yourself well, there's this insecurity that develops because no matter how good you do on a given day, you know in the end you are horribly broken. That's why you can't ever fill yourself. That's why you can't ever be fulfilled yourself. You are horribly broken. Created in the image of God, and yet that image, that mirror image has been shattered by sin. And because it has been shattered by sin, there's this incredible uh, insecurity that has developed in our lives, um, and it's happened ever since the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, there's this tremendous insecurity, and that insecurity and that vulnerability, that sense of vulnerability is always with you, right? And what happens is, uh, what happens is you are, you are working constantly to be important. You are working constantly to work out that insecurity, to get rid of that insecurity, to earn, and you do that by gaining the, earning the acceptance of other people. It's why oftentimes um, uh, there's, uh, there's a, a lot of, a lot of defensiveness on our own. Because when you're defensive, you're, the people who know you best, when they call you out and you get defensive, what are you saying, essentially? You're trying to get rid, you're trying to somehow cope and deal with that insecurity, right? By fighting off what, what others plainly see, maybe you're veiled to it, or maybe you know and you don't want other people to, so you're trying to convince people out of it. You know what you're doing? You're lying. You're manipulating. You're trying to manipulate the process or the situation or what people are seeing. You're putting on masks, right, to somehow lie and cheat, manipulate other people. A lot of times what we're doing, even that is work. It's awfully tiring. It's exhausting. But we do it by padding our resumes. We do it by uh, having lots of friends around us, developing big, important circles around us because then I'm known, then I'm acceptable, then I'm beautiful, you see? We do that. It's our way of dealing with our brokenness that's caused by our sin. We cannot ascend on our own. And so there's this discomfort and this sense of deficiency, this poverty. We're bankrupt. We're not only bankrupt, no matter how many people we often surround ourselves with, we know we still have to deal with this brokenness on our own. And so there's this deep 
darkness and aloneness and this insecurity and this vulnerability. We are, like Jacob, broken and bankrupt and homeless and alone. And so the only way to climb that stairway because of that insufficiency and deficiency, we're trying to climb that stairway. The only way to do it is to lie and manipulate and cheat, maybe step over other people to get ahead. That's Jacob, but that's us. That's us. We're desperate for that kind of acceptance. We're desperate for that righteousness. We're desperate then for the blessing. And every time you lie and every time you pad your social resume, every time you're defensive about something that somebody else sees or points out, you're trying to climb that stairway. You are trying to climb that stairway. You're trying to still somehow finagle your way into getting access and to earn that acceptance. You see that? What's Jacob's dream? It's not a gate to heaven, but a gate from heaven, a stairway from heaven. And God himself comes down. Jacob's confused because if he had to climb, he would have to earn the blessing. He would have to be perfect and righteous and acceptable, and he's not. But he knows he's not. He's a sinner and he's a liar. That's why he is where he is. Guys, there's lots of different kinds of suffering. There's a suffering that just happens because of general sin in the world, natural disasters and diseases. That's because sin in general has infected and destroyed our world. Then there's a kind of suffering that happens because other sinful people are acting and working on you. You are being wronged and sinned against. And so there's a brokenness and there's just tremendous hurt. And it could be physical hurt, right? You could get attacked or assaulted in some ways. And it seems blind and sometimes random or, or, or completely chaotic. And yet that's because of just other people's sin in our lives. But that's not even what's going on here. This is Jacob's own sinfulness. This is Jacob's lying, and, J- and that's, there's a different kind of suffering. When Jesus talks about persecution, he's not talking about that kind of suffering. Persecuting because you're, you're a Christian is very different from, from the suffering that comes from your own sinfulness against other people. That's Jacob. He knows this. He knows why he's broken. He knows why he's alone, and yet he realizes that he's had it all wrong because you cannot get to God and earn that blessing by being good to cover over your badness, by being important to cover over your sense of insignificance. That's you climbing the steps to God. And it's why we're so dependent on our wealth. If you really, really are introspective and reflective, if you get to the deepest roots as to why we hold on to these things, that's the reason why we hold on to our wealth. That's the reason why we hold on to our careers and our love lives so tightly. It's why we hold on to that one <clears throat> word of approval from our bosses or the word of approval from our parents. It's because it gives us a sense of worth. And it's why we're also constantly tired because we've got to get our story straight in some ways. We're constantly hustling, trying to keep the lies straight it catches up to you. Jacob, for a moment, he saw that he can't earn the blessing. It's only by God's sheer grace you receive a blessing. You can't go to him. He's got to come down. But it's a problem for Jacob, right? The problem for Jacob is this. How could that kind of God, I get that God is righteous, God is holy, God is good. How can that God come down to me? Now think back, Abraham, he seeks God, and God answers. 
How does God answer? Through a smoking fire pot, a blazing torch. In his dread and in his darkness, God comes in a holy and consuming fire. Moses says, I want you to show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God says, I can't. I can't show you all my glory. Why? Because of the dread. Because of the, the, the holy dread. My beauty is so beautiful. My brilliance is so brilliant. You will be consumed. Isaiah goes to the temple, sees this holy God himself, falls to the ground and cries, woe is me, because of the dread. He says, I am dead. But not Jacob. Jacob's perplexed. Jacob's not seeking God, likely not even thinking much about God, and yet God intrudes right into his life. God, like a doting father, comes in pretty much to tuck him to sleep. You see? How? Why? Centuries later, in John chapter 1, the people come to Nathaniel, his friends. They say, we found the Messiah, one to whom the prophets are talking about, speaking about, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? In other words, Nazareth isn't important. There are no important people there. It's not the center of anything. No one important ever comes from Nazareth. And Philip says, I want you to come and see. And Nathaniel encounters Jesus. And Jesus says, here is a true Israelite in whom there's nothing false. And Nathaniel asks, how do you know me? And Jesus responds very simply, know you? I saw you under the fig tree. And people for centuries have been trying to figure out what was going on underneath that fig tree. What was Nathaniel thinking? And the answer is we don't know in the end. We really don't. We have no idea what Nathaniel was doing or thinking under the fig tree. But whatever it was, it was so very private. He kept it so much to himself. But Jesus knew, and it was plain, and it convinced Nathaniel who Jesus is. And when Nathaniel realized Jesus' transcendent knowledge about him, he confessed, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus responds, you believe because I told you I saw you underneath the fig tree. You will see even greater things than that. Here's the key. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You will see heaven open." And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He doesn't say, and you will see what Jacob saw, the angels of God ascending and descending on a stairwell, the angels of God ascending and descending on a ladder. He says, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What's he saying? What Jesus is saying right there to Nathaniel is, I am that staircase. I am the stairway to heaven that Jacob saw. I am the link. I am the gate to heaven. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the gate. This is huge. Here's why. The centerpiece of Christianity <clears throat> is not rules. I grew up thinking that the centerpiece was all about living a good life, and if you live a good life, God will love you. God will bless you. The centerpiece of Christianity is not rules. It's not teaching so that you can earn your access to God. The centerpiece of Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus who is the gate. He is a stairway 
the ultimate access to God because Jesus Christ fulfilled all the requirements. He fulfilled the rules and the requirements. He climbed the steps. He climbed the hill to Calvary. And on, that, on Calvary, on that hill, on the cross where he hung, that wasn't the access point, that high point where he would meet God, but where he would lose the Father so that we could have the Father. Jesus Christ would be the sacrifice, the lamb, the perfect sacrifice. That's the only way that heaven will open up. Why is Jacob miserable? He's lonely because he was proud. Lonely because he was deceitful. Lonely because he's sinful. Heaven seemed closed to Jacob. But in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is being baptized and the Bible says that heaven opened up and the Spirit of God descended on Jesus. God came down. And God is doting on his son because Jake, Jesus, he deserved the love of the Father. Jacob stole the blessing. Jesus was righteous. The most perfect person that ever lived. He had the approval. He had the blessing. Jacob had to steal the blessing. When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world, what happened here? That meant God came down. He came down. He came in. And he said, Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. What he's saying is, I'm homeless. Jesus Christ was penniless, bankrupt, homeless, and on the night he was betrayed, his friends had deserted him. He was friendless. He had no family. And on the cross, Jesus Christ was ultimately vulnerable, ultimately defenseless. There was no security. And on the cross, Jesus Christ bore the full force of the wrath of God, pouring out on him the penalty that we deserved, the penalty that Jacob deserved. And he cries out, my God, my God, why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, I'm forsaken. Heaven is completely closed. What Jacob saw, that's what he felt. But it was the complete opposite. God was right there in his presence. And yet here, Jesus Christ is crying out, heaven has completely closed on me. I've lost access. God, the Father, my true home, my ultimate wealth, my security has gone from me. And now I am alone and I am bankrupt and I'm vulnerable, cosmically vulnerable, and I'm suffering. There's the alienation. There's the suffering. There's the dread on the cross. That's the real dread, the real darkness. It's like the sun actually set on Jesus. There was real darkness when he died. And he asked, why? Why? Jesus Christ gave up his wealth so that we can have his wealth. We could be rich in him. Jesus Christ lost his family. On that day, God the Father abandoned him. The Trinity ripped apart, essentially, in a sense, and he did that so that we would have a place. We would have a home. We would have a father. Jesus Christ lost his security, became cosmically vulnerable, destroyed on the cross so we could be protected and secure. Salvation is not based on what you have done. Salvation is not based on what uh, you do. 
It's based on what Christ has done. Salvation is not based on your character or your person. Salvation is not based on your beauty, but on the beauty of Christ and his character and his person. It's not based on your merit or your record, wherever you've been. It's based on Jesus' merit, Jesus' record, where he's been. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus, who for your sakes became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You want to talk about suffering? Is there any good that can come from suffering? What this passage is saying is that through Christ's bankruptcy, spiritually, in every way, through that badness, through that suffering and death, we have become wealthy in him. There was an ultimate good. There was a plan. There is a promise. There is a presence. God's redemption works through our weakness, through our suffering, through the injustice, through times of confusion, even through death. And God is on the move right now for your good and for his glory. What does that mean? We're going to finish it with this. Very quick things. One, if you're living right now I mean, if you're real with yourself and you're living right now, thinking only about yourself, what you want, what you can gain from this and what you can gain from that, no matter what, you're going to get this. You may get some things, right? It's not like the world is close to you. You may get some things, but you will die alone. You will. The ultimate aloneness. If that's the way you're going to live. You know, hell is not a place we're sent. I used to think, you know, it's like you die and like, like I always say, like, even that movie Ghost, you probably haven't seen it. It was done in the 80s, right? These ghosts like kind of come out of the ground and then you hear it and then like grabs you and then you get taken away and you get, you get sent to hell, right? That's, that's not what happens. I'm going to submit to you, you choose hell. Because if you choose to lie and continue to lie and continue to lie, the lies get bigger. It gets more uncontrollable. Eventually, the lies overtake you. You become the lie until you wake up one day and you live eternally in the lie. You're confounded by greed. If you're gripped by greed, you will step over people and you will be alone sometimes here on earth. There are earthly consequences, but eventually the greed will overtake you so much so one day you will wake up. It will burst you into a life and death of greed. If you live in hate, that hate will so much overtake you over the course of time, and you will be angry at people, you will alienate people, you will alienate family even, you will alienate other people around you, and all the good things that God has given to you, almost as a signpost pointed to God. And yet what you're going to do is when you reject these things and live a life of anger and pride and arrogance, one day you will just become pride and arrogance and anger, and you will wake up in a place where that is home. You see? We choose it. Number two, but God is in it with you here. Right now, every day is an opportunity. God is in it with you. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, 
the vilest, the poor, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. Number three, now think about this. Why did God come to Jacob when he wasn't asking for God, when he wasn't praying to God, when he wasn't living a good life? And the answer, this is beautiful. God is attracted. We are not attracted to this stuff. We're attracted to beautiful people. We're attracted to beautiful homes. We're attracted to beautiful neighborhoods. We're attracted to illustrious careers. God, he's attracted to the most broken. To those who believe life seems closed. To the lost. To the last. To the least. What's the prerequisite for getting access to God? Are you lost? Do you feel least? Do you feel like life sometimes, career sometimes, bank account dead end? (laughs) If God can come to Jacob, surely he's coming to you. You can be honest with God. You can pray to God. You may be a liar, but you can be loved. You may be a cheater. God's grace is even more charitable. Number four, Jacob wasn't seeking God. He wasn't repented. But how did Jacob start to see? And it's, a, it's a long journey. It doesn't end here. But how did he begin to see? God spoke to him in the midst of his confusion and darkness. The darkness came And that was the context in which God began to speak into Jacob. Are you confused today? Uncertain today? Life seemed dark as if the sun sometimes is setting in your life? There are times when we feel that way, right? The best thing you can do, you're doing it, is you are hearing the word of God. Let him speak to you. Will you trust it? Will you trust that? I'm going to give you some practical advice. There are some wonderful spiritual fathers and mothers in this room. Seek them. Let them give you godly counsel. It's like God, the Father, doting on you with his presence, begging you to do that. Lastly, very simple. What does this tell you? Jacob's a mess. There's not a single person who's going to read the passages that we've seen over the last few weeks and say, I want a neighbor like Jacob. I want a roommate like Jacob. God doesn't give up on us. That's what it means. Your journey could be 10 years. Your journey may have been 20 years. Your journey may have been ever since you started in the church. Your journey may be, wow, all over the place until you came to church for the first time. Even despite your motives, God doesn't give up on you. Look at Jacob's response. If you read the rest of this passage, Jacob's response is interesting because it's horrible. It's a horrible response. God comes in his power and gives him this unconditional promise. And Jacob thinks about it, and he he thinks he understands it. And then he says, well, God must be here. I will serve him if he actually comes through for me. If he makes good, then I'll serve him. That's what he says. Then he will be my God. That's a horrible response. God comes unconditionally with love, and Jacob conditionally responds. Who is Jacob? He's just using God, and yet God 
goes to in the middle of nowhere, comes to him and seeks him. It's an amazing thing. Remarkable. Remember that. As we come to the table, let's remember what this meal represents. This meal literally represents you taking God in. He's attracted to the broken. What does that mean? Then right now, let's consider our brokenness. He speaks into our lives with his word. Then let's take in the word as we take in who Jesus is. And remember that God is not giving up on us. And by the way, we shouldn't be giving up on others either. Never give up on other people. Let's pray.